Okay, well, let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day. We know that your mercies are new every day. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Even every sunrise is just a reminder of your providence and your goodness and your grace. And Lord, even when the weather's bad and when the weather's good, you're still God. And just uh, help us to remember that. Help us to trust in you in good times and bad. And Lord, I thank you for Plum Creek Chapel and the opportunity we have to gather together today and uh, just worship you and uh, study your word. I pray that it would really mold and shape us. Uh, I pray that the more we know about you and your plan of the ages, it would really strengthen our faith and remind us uh, that you're uh, in control. And Lord, we pray today, if there's anyone listening uh, that doesn't know you through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that today might be the very day that the Spirit of God breaks through and really convicts them and they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome uh, once again. want to begin with just a couple of uh, quick announcements and uh, then really looking forward to getting into the eternal state. Uh, the eternal state is what we're going to talk about. And who knows how long that'll take, and I do want to allow plenty of time uh, to, you know, at the end of this series for questions. So we may, we may spend two or three weeks uh, at the very end taking your questions. Number two, you pushing two? There we go. All right, we're getting... Getting it set up on the screens here. All right, so I want to remind you of a couple of uh, podcasts from this week. Uh, the first is uh, one from Tuesday uh, on the days of Noah. I'm getting some great feedback from this. It's something I mentioned Wednesday that I've wanted to do for a long time. Certainly written about it a lot and, and talk. We have a chapter in our book that deals with the Olivet Discourse. Uh, but And I've talked about it in passing, but never really did a, just a quick you know, 45-minute discussion of this issue. And uh, so I hope you'll take the time to listen to that because among uh, Bible prophecy uh, experts and teachers and people that have an interest in that uh, topic, uh, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about that term. And even among people I greatly respect and we otherwise agree on uh, so many things, they really, when it comes to that passage in Matthew 24 where Jesus uh, talks about as in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man, uh, they really fumble the ball, I, I believe, and I think it's so clear. In fact, I got one email this week from someone who said, man, thank you for doing that. I've, I've really misunderstood this for so long, and it just seems so clear. I don't understand how I misunderstood it. Well, I don't either. But uh, anyway, I uh, hope, hope you'll check that out. Uh, it's uh, certainly relevant uh, for what we see coming down the pike uh, today. I love the way Jan Markell's been talking about it in her, uh, her newsletter, Trending Toward the Tribulation. That's, I wish I'd have thought of that, because that has a nice ring to it. That's a catchy, make a great book title. But anyway, uh, and then on uh, two, uh, Monday, I guess it was, I was uh, on Stand Up for the Truth. We have the privilege of being on there once a month, usually toward the end of the month. And uh, we, he asked me to cover what we've been covering on Wednesday nights, uh, which is what is Calvinism and is it biblical? So we resumed that Wednesday. We finished up with limited atonement. And so we've got two more topics to discuss in that series. Irresistible grace, which we'll start on this week, and then uh, the biggie, perseverance of the saints. Uh, one of the most troubling and yet one of the most misunderstood, uh, you know, uh, aspects of Calvinism. You know, if you ask your average Calvinist, just person who follows, you know, Calvinist teachers, you know, what is perseverance of the saints? Nine out of ten of them will say, oh, it means eternal security. Well, that's not what it means. 
Uh, if you go back and look at the Synod of Dorton, you look at their own writings, even modern Calvinists today, that's not what perseverance of the saints means. And we'll explain that as we get to it. It's kind of like if you ask the average Catholic, uh, what is the Immaculate Conception? They'll say, oh, it refers to the virgin birth of Mary. I mean, the virgin birth of Christ. No, it doesn't. It refers to the virgin birth of Mary. I don't know if you realize that. Immaculate Conception means that Mary was conceived divinely and is without sin. That's what the Catholic doctrine of Immaculate Conception means. Um, the Immaculate Reception is something totally different. I just had to throw that in there as a Cowboys fan. Um, all right, so anyway, that was uh, Monday, and so that podcast is out there. David always does an exceptional job of uh, just dialoguing and digging deeper, so I hope you'll check that out uh, as well. So uh, we're going to talk today about uh, the eternal state, part 61, and the topic uh, is, or I mean, what lies ahead, part 61, the topic is etern the eternal state, and I want us to kind of turn to Revelation 21, uh, and we'll be in the last two chapters of Revelation, because that's where we get the teaching about uh, the eternal state. And I was thinking on the drive-in that, you know, as I've talked about before, the Luciferians who are trying to take over this world at the behest of Satan to usher in the one world system, their paradigm, if you will, their playbook goes like this. Uh, order to disorder to the new world order. <laughs> That's their plan. So they like to take what God created, order, destroy it, mess it up, make it into chaos so that they can rebuild it, think build back better, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, in creating the new world order. It's also um, uh, another phrase for it is the Hegelian dialectic, which I've talked about before. So order, disorder, new world order. Well, when you come to the biblical narrative and God's plan of the ages, it goes order, created mankind in sinless perfection. God saw everything that he created and said, it is good. After he created Adam and Eve, he said, it is very good. Uh, but then we sinned, uh, bringing the curse of sin on all of creation, creating disorder. So order, disorder. But when we come to the eternal state, we see reorder. We see God recreating everything and, and returning us back to the way things were before the fall. So another way to think of that is this chart, which we have not looked at in a long time, but I think it's very relevant as we come to this final stage in God's plan of the ages. But the purpose of this chart, uh, you notice the title is The Purposes of God in Human History, uh, is to just demonstrate that you know the biblical narrative tells a story that goes from creation to fall to redemption to new, new creation. And along the way, uh, God is doing a lot. I mean, he has a lot of things that are part of this plan. But everything you see in the circle on the screen there, God's plan for the universe, involves uh, certain you know, groups or created beings for which he has a unique plan along the way. So obviously God has a plan for uh, the church. You know, that's where we tend to... Uh, Focus and, and anytime you elevate, by the way, any one of these things above all the rest, you, you're gonna, your theology is going to get out of balance. So, uh, you know, a lot of people obsess and focus on the church as, we, as if we are the end-all, be-all of God's plan. And that's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel, God has forsaken Israel, everything in Scripture is fulfilled today 
in the church. It's called Kingdom Now Theology, or uh, Replacement Theology, as I said, or Supersessionism is another term that you'll see in the literature. And so, uh, but that's not the case. Yes, the church has a purpose and a role to play. Yes, we are the bride of Christ. Yes, if you're part of the body of Christ by faith, you will always be part of the body of Christ. You have a role to play that's unique in the kingdom as well. But we're not the sum total of the plan. We're not the end-all, be-all of the plan. Similarly, God has a plan for Israel, and that plan is not complete. God pressed pause on that plan after the rejection of Christ at the first advent, set Israel aside, not permanently but temporarily, and that's when the church, the mystery of the church, was ushered in. And uh, once the rapture happens and the church is no longer on the earth, then God will resume his focus on Israel. Israel will take center stage once again, and God's plan for Israel will be brought to fruition. We've been talking a lot about that in this uh, study. So if you look at an end times chart, you see the rapture over here on the left, and then the tribulation starts with the signing of the peace treaty here, Daniel 9, 27. Everything after that is focused on Israel. I mean, it's Israel that's going to be center stage during the tribulation. The Antichrist will take the throne in Jerusalem, in the temple, ruling from Jerusalem. Uh, the millennium, when Christ comes back, where is he going to rule from? The city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel describes the new temple that's going to build, be built where? In Jerusalem. So God's plan for Israel is by no means over. Uh, you know, so much of the Old Testament prophets, you know, uh, speak about Israel and, and it's unfulfilled. It, you know, it's, it's amazing how uh, the, 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 first, the prophecies of Christ's first advent were fulfilled literally, and nobody denies that. I mean, you can't deny it. He was literally born in Bethlehem. He was literally born of a virgin, and so on. He literally had a forerunner named John the Baptist. So nobody denies that, but yet for some reason when it comes to the prophecies that have not been fulfilled, they tend to sweep them aside and spiritualize them and make them out to be some kind of big allegory or you know, symbolically fulfilled in the church. And so it's just an inconsistent way to handle Scripture. So back to the chart here, you see... God has a plan for Israel, for the church. He's got a plan for every individual human being and our salvation. He's got a plan for angels, for demons. You know, uh, Jesus said, going back to the days of Noah, in that same passage in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said that when he comes back at the second coming, which is what the days of Noah were referring to, by the way, not the rapture. The rapture is not in the Olivet Discourse. Um, but he says when he comes back, <clears throat> he's going to separate the sheep from the goats <clears throat> to the goats, the unbelievers, at the end of the tribulation. He's going to say, depart from me in the everlasting fire, and then what? Anybody know the rest of that? Depart from me in, in, uh, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared. What does that mean? Well, that's what God's plan is all along. And then at the end of the millennium, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, <clears throat> we see that the Antichrist, well, at the second coming, the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into that everlasting fire but at the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment satan himself is cast and all of hell is cast into the everlasting lake of fire at that point so this has been god's plan all along so yes he has a plan for angels he has a plan for demons the plan for angels involves being ministering spirits to us and helping fight the cosmic battle there are spiritual warfare going on right now and, and often we never even know about it we should at least contemplate it and recognize that God is protecting us sometimes through angels. But a few weeks ago in our study through uh, 
Acts, we talked about seeing the supernatural and recognize that, you know, sometimes God does things we may not even be aware of, and he uses angels to do that. So the point is, all of this is going on, but any one of these things, you know, if you obsess over any one of them, your theology is going to get out of balance. So if you start on the far left here, you see the creation side, which it started with the creation of the world when God spoke the world into existence. Then after the flood, he created the nations. And that's when we, for the first time in God's plan for human history, went from globalism to nationalism. And to this day, some 4,000, 5,000 years later, we're still in a nationalist uh, paradigm, which is why we ought to resist the globalist New World Order. The proper globalism will not return until Christ comes back and takes the throne, and then we have a one-world government and peace and righteousness and justice. But until then, God's divine design is national sovereignty, and that all started in Genesis 10. And then you see the creation of Israel with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, and then you see the creation of the church on the day of Pentecost, as we've been talking about in our study through Acts. Uh, but, of course, all of these uh, are corrupt and are incomplete and are not perfect, until we come back, you know, to the other side. So the church today, we're still, for example, in our physical body, sold under sin. And uh, we need to be renewed. And that won't happen until uh, the resurrection of the body, or the translation of the body, if you're alive at the time of the rapture, when the rapture happens. So I don't think any of us need a reminder of, uh, you know, the fact that our bodies are ailing, <laughs> They're aging, they're incomplete, they're not in their final glorified form, right? And so when the rapture happens, then we will receive our resurrected body. Uh, last week, I think it was, someone asked about our resurrected bodies, and I think we put this chart up then. But by God's you know, plan, flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom. We know that from 1 Corinthians 15. So every believer of every age has to at some point receive their glorified body. For non-church age believers prior to the church age, you know, Old Testament saints, that occurs at the second coming. When Christ comes back to inaugurate the kingdom, that's when those people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the rest, will be resurrected and receive their glorified body. For us, it will occur at the rapture. And again, not everybody will die. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, a euphemism for die, but we shall all be changed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he says... In a moment and twinkling of eye, we, we shall be changed. That's the talking about the translation of believers at the rapture. So that's when you and I will get our glorified bodies. Uh, then for those who get saved during the tribulation, they too will get their glorified bodies at the second coming. Those who get saved in the millennium, it's my view that they don't die because death cannot you know, occur for believers in the kingdom age. So they will be translated at some point but prior to the eternal state. But for all unbelievers... I was just talking about this at dinner with someone uh, Friday night. Uh, all unbelievers will not be resurrected until the second death, which is at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. And they have to have, they too have to have an eternal body that can be tormented. You know, a lot of people misunderstand the distinction between the temporal realm and the eternal realm. You, know, you take a physical body and you put it in a fire, it's going to burn up. But the soul you know, the Bible tells us of unbelievers will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the everlasting lake of fire is a fire that cannot be quenched. And that's a pretty sobering thought. I mean, it's a scary and, and somber thought. And unfortunately, people don't understand that nobody 
has to go there. Anybody that spends eternity there is it's their own doing because God is freely offering the gift of forgiveness and eternal life to whoever wants to take it. But we've created a, you know, a, a, a view of God today, especially, well, really everywhere, especially, you know, in Europe before us, but even now it's become mainstay of evangelical Christianity, that God is the softer, kinder, gentler God, and God would never want anybody to suffer. Well, he told us exactly that in his word. So either God's a liar or, you know, unbelievers will spend eternity being tormented day and night forever. I mean, there's no way around it. Uh, this notion of annihilationism that unbelievers who die eventually just cease to exist, not taught in Scripture. For example, the Antichrist, a human being, and his second in command, the false prophet, after their reign of terror for a seven-year period, they're cast into the everlasting fire. And then a thousand years later, they're still there, the Bible tells us. So, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't support annihilationism from Scripture. So, uh, for, uh, for the redemption side of things, it starts with the rapture of the church, then the restoration of Israel in the land, when God supernaturally brings them back into the land. Jesus said he's going to send his angels to the four corners, or the four winds of heaven, and they will, you know, come back. Um, then we see the, at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the retribution of the nations. In other words, at the battle of Armageddon, the climax of the seven-year tribulation, that's really the, the ultimate judgment of God or justice of God. Not the final judgment, but it's, it's the great equalizer. And all of the inequities and unfairness of life that we cry out about and we, we, just, we, we hate to see the innocent suffer and the guilty go free, all of that will come to fruition when Christ comes back with a rod of iron and a sword proceeding out of his mouth. But the final piece of the puzzle, and God's plan of the ages, will not be complete until we get to this final piece, and that is the redemption of all creation. Uh, so again, creation of the world, creation of the nations, creation of Israel, creation of the church, coming back down, rapture of the church, restoration of Israel, retribution of the nations, and redemption of creation. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the eternal state. So any questions or thoughts on any of that so far as I kind of set the stage? Yeah. So the restoration of Israel, is that to the physical Old Testament boundaries? So the question is, um, and I will always try to repeat uh, the question. I Someone uh, emailed me this week. I was so grateful. They said, hey, we don't mind if there's a pause because we love to hear the questions and we know that people are asking questions and we learn from that. So I know it is sometimes there's silence if you're listening online or the podcast, but uh, I'll try to repeat it. So the question is, is the restoration of Israel to the Old Testament land? The answer is yes. Now, it's the Old Testament boundaries are given for the promised land are given in Genesis 15:6, And as we've talked about before, never in history has Israel occupied all of that. Now Joshua tells us they had the rights to all of it at one point, but they never actually physically got there. And so it's a broad uh, you know, area. But yes, they will be uh, returned uh, to the land. And again, it's a, it's a supernatural return. Uh, I hate to open a can of worms because I know really good, solid people uh, take a different view on this, and, and I respect them, some of the people I respect most and that I've shared the platform with at conferences, but I just disagree. I don't think we are experiencing the, re, the, the fulfillment of that promise for Israel today. I recognize that Israel began 
to go back to the land after Israel was uh, created as a nation again in 1948. Uh, what was it, May 14th, I think, 1948? But I believe that's a setting of the stage, not the actual fulfillment of prophecy for two reasons. Number one, my understanding of the doctrine of imminency of the rapture teaches that the rapture could happen at any moment and could have happened at any moment in the last 2,000 years. That being the case, no prophecy can be fulfilled before the rapture. The rapture is the next prophetic event that will be fulfilled. That's why if you look at the appendix in my book, What Lies Ahead, uh, which, by the way, I should have mentioned, if you don't have it, we've got copies on the table, or you can uh, get it uh, at notbyworks.org. Uh, but in, my, in that book, What Lies Ahead, I have an appendix that has the sequential order of end times events. And number one on the list, of course, is the rapture. That's the next event to which the world looks forward. If you put any prophecy before that, then that means effectively that the rapture could not have happened, let's say, in 1947, right? Because that prophecy had to be fulfilled. Well, it didn't have to be fulfilled. But that's the first reason I believe it. But more of a direct reason is I don't think that the language of the text supports it. So you have tons of passages in the Old Testament that predict that someday... Israel will be brought back into the land when the new covenant blessings are ultimately fulfilled in the, in the inaugurated kingdom. Tons of them. Like Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13. Every one of the Old Testament prophets speaks of that. You know, hey, you might be in bondage now to Assyria, but a better day is coming. You're going to be brought back land. Or Babylon, or Rome, or whatever it is. Greece. Um, so all of them speak of it, but Jesus gives us some details in the Olivet Discourse when he says... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, talking about the end of the seven years, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with, great, with power and great glory. Now listen, this is Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, talking about Israel in context, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So how is this regathering into the land going to happen? It's going to be supernatural. Now that's not to say there won't already be, especially during the tribulation and so forth, a natural return, and that's already happening. And I believe that's setting the stage. That's, that's not the fulfillment. In other words, the, the fulfillment is... Could, could have happened regardless of whether Israel became a nation again. Hypothetically, Israel might not have become a nation until after the rapture, right? I mean, we don't know. Uh, it's all part of God's plan. It seems clear to me that his plan was for Israel to become a nation prior to the rapture. Uh, I mean, I don't think Israel's going to cease to be a nation again. I think it's, this is all part of God's plan. But just theologically speaking, we could, it could have gone... Let me put up my uh, end times chart again. It could have gone rapture which it brings chaos and deception and all kinds of things as the Antichrist begins his rise to power during that preparation of unknown length, which you see over here on the left. And perhaps during that time, God could have orchestrated such geopolitical events that Israel once again was established as a nation. I mean, that's hypothetically possible. So the fact that Israel became a nation in 1948 isn't a prophetic event. It's a uh, an event with prophetic implications. See the difference? It's a setting of the stage. And I think, uh, unfortunately, 
in, in my view, and again, with all respect, a lot of people, uh, you know, see that and they, they say, oh, this is the fulfillment of, you know, the dry bones prophecy in Ezekiel 37, or this is the fulfillment of one of the returns that's talked about in some of the Old Testament passages and so forth. And when we do that, we open the door to allegorical teaching because we're basically looking at the newspaper first and then bringing that to the text and saying, this is that. And I just, I, I take a, a different approach. So, again, not to suggest that it wasn't a big deal. In my uh, video on top ten, uh, I forget what it's called, it's called... Uh, Ten unmistakable signs that we may be living in the last of the last days. Remember, the last days is the church age. The very first sign that I list in there is the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. So clearly, it's a setting of the stage, and praise God for it. But that's not the fulfillment of this restoration of Israel. That won't happen until the second coming when Christ sends his angels to supernaturally gather them. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, where does the distraction of Damascus come in in relative to the rapture, you said? Well, that's easy. You could, you could say anything. When does X happen relative to the rapture? And the answer is afterwards. But you want something more specific, probably. So I would say it's, it's probably something that's going to happen in the lead-up to the Antichrist's rise to power. So in that, uh, you know, period of preparation here. So in my book, I talk about, based on Daniel 11 and 12, a, a, you have you know, the Battle of Gog and Magog. You have uh, those nations from the north, Russia, Syria, Turkey, and so forth, Libya, coming in against Israel. It's my uh, uh, suggestion that that happens after the rapture as a result of Israel, you know, all the chaos in the world. These nations see this opportunity in the fog of, chaos to come in and to capture this land remember the land of israel which the bible calls repeatedly the holy land or god says this is my land or his land and so forth has always been coveted i mean going back three major world religions are founded there so um, they're going to you know come in and try to take that we know according to the description of this battle in ezekiel 38 and 39 that god supernaturally intervenes and protects israel but meanwhile daniel tells us a western alliance forms which I believe gives rise to the Antichrist, and they come in to do battle with the Northern Alliance. And uh, when God wins the battle on behalf of Israel, they take credit for it, and this propels the Antichrist, the future Antichrist, to world fame. And he has sort of prevented, uh, you know, this this war, or you know, uh, this World War Four or whatever it'll be by then. And so that's the context in which he's able to sign the peace treaty that's described in, Dan, in Daniel 9.27. So to me, that's a very plausible um, you know, way things are going to play out. It's absolutely a lot of speculation and kind of connecting dots. We can't point to chapter and verse that says this is exactly the way it's going to play out. But that's, that's my best guess, and I wouldn't be surprised when we get to heaven if I find out I'm right, and you can all come say, you were right. Yeah. I have one other question. Sheep and goat judgments. I yeah. heard that that is a judgment against the nation for how they treated Israel, but you had mentioned it was on the individual. Yes, so let's go to the eschatological judgments. So 
The question is, the sheep and the goats judgment, uh, what's the exact nature of that? Well, certainly, all, you know, in, every individual on earth that's alive at the end of the tribulation, uh, except Israel, because they've been physically brought back into land. So they're not part of this. But every other human being on earth it is made up of individuals. So whatever else it is, it definitely involves an individual judgment, right? The, the herd of sheep has individual sheep in it, and the herd of proverbial goats, the metaphor Jesus uses, has individual goats in it. But who, who are they made up of? That's the real question. So uh, it's often referred to as the judgment of the nations. You've probably heard that um, because it's it, trying to distinguish it from the judgment of Israel. So Israel's judgment is, you know, unbelievers are going to be, you know, like every unbeliever, basically swept up in this judgment of the sheep and the goats. But believers won't be part of the sheep. For, for Israel, you follow me? Because they're the ones that we just read about that are gathered by supernaturally by God and brought into the land. And so at the start of the millennium, the Jews are in the land. And they're there to, you know, kick off the kingdom with the banqueting supper and all of that. But so who does that leave? If the Jews are already taken care of, that leaves the Gentiles or the rest of the world or the nations, it's called. And so uh, it is a global judgment. And in that sense, it's everybody on earth, again, with the exception of Israel, with the exception of believing Israel. And to those, to everyone on earth, at that point, Christ comes back. He sits on the throne. This is described in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking. He refers to himself uh, in the first person, kind of like Bob Dole used to do. He says, uh, for when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all of his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats and so then he goes on to describe it's an extended metaphor here obviously we're not talking literal sheep and literal goats but then he goes on to describe the eventuality of the goats and the sheep now when we compare scripture to scripture we know the only ultimate basis upon which anyone is cast into hell or enters heaven is unbelief. Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you do believe I am he, then you'll have everlasting life. So in the context here, remember this is at the end of the tribulation and what's been happening on the earth for seven years? Well, 144,000 Jewish witnesses because the spotlight is back on Israel again. It's not, the church is already gone. Have been running around the, the world sharing the gospel, trying to convince people to believe in Jesus. At the end of the tribulation, uh, in uh, Revelation, I think it's um, 16, if I want to, if I want to remember, for anywhere, somewhere between 14 and 16, you have as time is getting short and they're leading up to that final battle of Armageddon, you know, if the 144,000 have not, you know, reached the uttermost parts of the earth, God sends an angel to do the rest of the work and preach the everlasting gospel. And, um, and it's not uncommon for angels to be the herald of good news. It was an angel that heralded the good news to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, right? So God uses an angel to, to finish the job because Jesus had promised that prior to his return, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel, Matthew 24. So, uh, so you know, they're, the, they're spreading the gospel, and, and they're doing it in a Jewish context. These 144,000 witnesses are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're saying things like Messiah is coming, you know, 
the king is coming, you need to believe in him, and so forth. So when you go back to the sheep and the goats, Jesus is basically describing the response to the gospel. Some people, when the 144,000 came knocking and said, you know, uh, you know, here you need to believe in Jesus, or the king is coming, or whatever articulation they did, slammed the door in their face. And here's the way he describes it. Um, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or, and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And here's what the king will answer. I say to you, assuredly, as, uh, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Who's he talking about? The 144,000, the Jewish witnesses, Israel. You know, that's the brethren, Jesus' brethren. Uh, you did it to me. So people completely, I mean, the, all of a discourse just gets completely, you know, blasted with false misunderstandings and bad hermeneutics, you know, not just the sheep and the goats, but the, ta the talents, the t ten virgins, the days of Noah that I talked about earlier. But, you know, I've heard people preach this that, you know, well, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be kind to your neighbor and give him food. You've got to give to the homeless. And, I mean, that's just so contrary to the overwhelmingly clear teaching of Scripture that salvation from cover to cover is by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with doing this. So, do, doing these things. He's just describing in poetic form here you know, what their response was for the last seven years to the message from his brethren. If you Basically, I would summarize it this way. If you responded favorably to my witnesses, that is, if you believe the gospel, you're in. If you rejected them and, did, and mistreated them, then you're out. Not because of that, it's a description. So we need to be clear, no one gets to heaven because they were kind to a stranger or gave clothes to goodwill. You know, that's not how you get to heaven. You get to heaven by grace through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So the sheep and the goats judgment, yes, that's, this is a long answer, but yes, it is in essence, how did you not treat Israel as a whole, but how did you treat the, the representatives of Israel who came to share the gospel with you? And um, if you responded favorably and believed their message, then like everyone else who believes the gospel, you're saved. If you didn't, well, then you're part of the goat. Goat family. Does that make sense? Yes. Great question. So you're smiling because you were hoping I'd answer that question, right? <laughs> I've just been talking about this a lot. So the question is, First uh, uh, Thessalonians 4.13 talks about at the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. And how does that relate to the Feast of Trumpets? So I don't think it relates at all. Okay, There are a lot of trumpets in Scripture. We just read about one. Jesus said at His second coming, let's put the uh, end times chart up again, at His second coming, the sound of a trumpet will be heard. There were trumpets when the walls of Jericho fell. There's seven trumpets that announce judgments in the tribulation. And when people start looking at all the trumpets and start to assume that they're all the same, that's where they get into bad theology. Now, this is not, this is a separate question from what you're talking about. I'll get to it in a second, but I just want to be clear that 
you know, the mid-tribulation view is basically, this is a somewhat of a generalization, but it's a key point in their view, is they take the trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4 that happens at the rapture, and they say, calls it the last trump, you know, that must be the seventh trumpet in Revelation 8, which happens at the midpoint. So therefore, the rapture is going to happen at the midpoint. It's nonsense. The rapture is unrelated to Israel. It's for the church. It's prior to Daniel's uh, 70th week starting. If you look at the 490-year plan of Daniel, you know, everything in blue on the screen here is part of that 490-year plan for Israel. Daniel very plainly says, 490 years are prophesied for your people and your holy city. That's not us. This was 500 years before the church. Um, but God says after the 483rd year, the plan with Israel is going to be put on hold, temporarily set aside. God shifts his focus to the church age, which the Bible calls a mystery, meaning something not foretold in the Old Testament. At the end of the church age, when the rapture happens, God shifts back to, to uh, Israel, and the final seven-year period starts with the uh, signing of the treaty, as Daniel 9.27 describes. So the reason I don't think the rapture is going to happen in conjunction with the Feast of Trumpets is there are a couple of reasons. I always go back to imminency. So the first reason is the Feast of Trumpets is a fall feast, September-October, and if because the Bible teaches the doctrine of imminency that the rapture could happen at any moment, if the rapture had to happen in the Feast of Trumpets time frame, it couldn't happen in April, for example. Well, April is a moment, and so is January, February, March, and so forth. So the rapture could happen at any moment, 12 months of the year, at any time, according to the doctrine of imminency. But secondly, all seven feasts, I believe, are for Israel, not the church. We're not Israel. And so even though you know, the Feast of Weeks happened you know, at the day of Pentecost, the same time the church was founded, it doesn't mean there's a correlation. God, on the day of Pentecost... God's plan with Israel stopped at that moment and pre-pressed pause, and a new plan began. They both happened to begin on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't mean the church be fulfilled the day of Pentecost. Nothing in the text says that. So I just don't see any correlation between the church and the rapture uh, and the, the feast for Israel. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about that. I've got friends that are, like, you know, selling their belongings and expecting the rapture to happen this fall. I just don't see it that way. I mean, it could. It certainly could. In the same way that the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, coincidentally, God and his plan might have it happen in, around that timetable. But I'm just saying there's nothing that requires that in Scripture. Make sense? Great question. Yes? Sure. Great question. So the question is, does God sometimes simultaneously deal with the church in Israel? Absolutely. And I think the day of Pentecost in 33 AD is an example of that. Okay. At the same time that God's focus on Israel was fading out and, and he was, you know, Israel, because they rejected the Messiah, God said, I'm going to set you aside. But Jesus said, by the way, in Matthew, I think it's 22, not to worry, someday I'm going to give the kingdom to a future generation of Israelites that are worthy of it. You're not. You weren't worthy because you didn't believe the gospel. So, yeah, I mean, on that day, it was, that was an example. I think right now God is simultaneously dealing with Israel and the church. As I said, I see the setting of the stage with 
Israel coming back. So, um, you know, I don't think they're, I mean, even though they're two separate plans and God's program for the church and God's program for the Israel are not the same, nevertheless, he can, there can be overlap in the God's dealings with them. So you had a follow-up. Uh, so is there a biblical definition of the word generation? Are you thinking of Matthew 24, 34? This generation shall by no means pass away. That is that the passage? Yeah, so so generation is not a te- technical term. Definitions all, always have to arise from the context, right? So context determines meaning. You can't just look it up in a dictionary and say, well, this is what the word means. And you can't look up the Greek word generation in a Greek lexicon and say this is what it means. It'd be like saying, is there a, de- a dictionary definition of the word trunk? Well, you look it up and it can be part of an elephant, part of a tree, a suitcase, part of a car. Right? So context has to determine meaning. And in Matthew 24, verse 34, after giving all of the signs, by the way, I don't remember if I talked about this in my Tuesday podcast. If not, I, I wish I had. I'm frustrated. But uh, I just can't remember. But in, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is answering the question, what are the signs of your coming to establish the kingdom? He gives all these signs. And then he says, after all these signs, the Son of Man will come, as we read about. Lightning will flash from the east to the west. The sign of the Son of Man will be in the sky. He'll gather Israel back into the land. And then he says, so when you see all these signs that I'm talking about, you know that my coming is near. In the same way that when you see a fig tree begin to sprout its leaves, you know summer is near. And then he says, in fact, I tell you the truth, the generation that sees all these signs will by no means pass away until my return happens. So this generation is the one he's just been talking about, not the one to whom he's talking. Uh, Prophecy by its nature is given, and this is true in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to a uh, generation in historical context, but they are not the ones that fulfilled it. So, for example, Isaiah the prophet prophesied that a virgin would have a child and that would be the Messiah. That was 800 years before it happened. That generation didn't see that. But he, still, he gave the prophecy to the uh, you know, Israelites at that time. So prophecy by its nature is, is future and you give it to the setting in which you're speaking but then the later generation fulfills it. So people totally misunderstand uh, Matthew 24, 34. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things have come to pass. That's where you get preterism and uh, amillennialism, and everybody thinks the, everything was fulfilled in the first century because, oh, this generation, that's first century, they can't, if they're, you know. But it's not the generation to whom he's speaking, it's the generation about whom he's speaking. The one that sees the signs will be the one that sees his coming. Yeah. I'd like to go back to the sheep and the goats. Okay. You're not a goat. If you've trusted in Christ, you're not a goat. I mean, you may be a goat in another sense, the greatest of all time. I don't know. But, <laughs> but if, if I understood what you said just a few moments ago, that the sheep and the goat, um, the sheep and the goats pertain to the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and the people that are on earth because the rapture already happened. Right. Okay. Us sheep are out of here. 144 are loose. And it's how that 144 is received. Right. Good news. 
that's that's when the judge was received from the very state court. Correct. So uh, the comment is, you know, clarifying when the judgment of the sheep and the goats takes place. So let me look at the chart first. All these charts are, by the way, in our chart book. Um, but it says sheep and the goats right in the middle there, timing at the second coming. You with me? So now if we go to the chart, second coming is right over here to inaugurate the kingdom. And that's when this judgment takes place. So to put it simply, the sheep and the goats judgment is the judgment of who's a believer and who's not at the time Christ comes back. The believers are the ones that inherit the kingdom and repopulate the earth. The unbelievers are cast into the lake of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, the only thing that needs to be nuanced there is, as I said, believing Israel. So if we go back to the chart, notice I say unbelievers and believers alive on earth at the end of the tribulation. Right here. So that's, that's who's participating in this judgment. The one exception to that, of course, is believing Israel, because this is the judgment of the nations. All the nations will be gathered to him in contrast to Israel, whom he has just talked about as having received, you know, believing Israel being gathered into the land. So a lot of passages are, are correlated here. Remember, uh, time and again, uh, the text talks about how, you know, Joel the prophet, that, Israel as a nation will not be gathered into the land and delivered into the land until they cry out in, you know, to God and call on the name of the Lord, Joel 2.32. Uh, Paul says it in Romans 10, that before Israel as a nation can be delivered in the kingdom when the deliverer comes, which is in chapter 11 of Romans, they must first individually believe the gospel. For with the heart man believes and is declared righteous, that's always true, it's the only way we can be justified before holy God by faith, but with the mouth, the nation of Israel will call on the name of the Lord and be saved, be delivered into the kingdom. Uh, and he says, how can they call on him in whom they have not first believed? And he says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. That's a quote of Joel 2, which is, again, a second coming passage for Israel to be uh, brought into the kingdom. Moreover, Jesus said in Matthew 23 to Israel when he issued that final rebuke just before giving the Olivet Discourse, he says to Israel, you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at the first advent, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. The second advent, the nation will call on the name of the Lord, be supernaturally regathered into the land, and Israel is taken care of. I forgot who asked the question, but you did. So, so Israel is not included in the judgment of the nations or the sheep and the goats judgment, uh, except for unbelieving Israel. If they don't believe in him after all that, then they're, you know, they're toast, right? So... All right, one more question, only because I'm running out of time. That was kind of the, what I was going to ask, is that unbelieving Israel does not get supernaturally relocated no. into the boundaries of Israel. They get sort of separated out into the goat. Correct, yes. Unbelieving Israel does not get supernaturally regathered into the land. That's right. That's why the, the return in that began in 1948 is not fulfillment of Scripture. They're not there in belief. So I don't, you know, well, I've talked about that before, so I'll just leave it there. Israel is an ally, and they're God's chosen nation, and God has a future for Israel, but that doesn't mean that everybody in, you know, political office in Israel today is a born-again believer. That's certainly not the truth. So, okay, well, awesome. So, uh, all right, so with that, let's start on the eternal state <laughs> next week. <laughs>
So, but no, this was good. I, I really want to make sure it's clear that we lay the foundation. We kind of understand conceptually where we're headed. So, yeah, we're not on any timetable. We'll obviously always take your questions. But let's uh, uh, dismiss, and uh, we'll come back together at locally here at 10 o'clock. For those of you live streaming, uh, it'll be roughly about 10.30 or so. All right, God bless.